You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And welcome to episode 87 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am continuing on with my regular coverage of the series and the history of the Vietnam War with issue number 77 and a look at the remainder of the summer of 1972, starting with July and ending in September. And this is how much of the historical coverage will go for the remaining comics-based episodes, especially as we head into 1973, when America's involvement in the war lessens considerably, so there won't be as much to cover. But more on that later. Let's get to the actual content of the episode, which is issue number 77 of that series. And that issue is the reason why I chose this episode's song. In the Navy, by the Village People, was released in 1979, years after the war. But the cover of the issue shows Ed Marks standing on the deck of an aircraft carrier with the phrase, In the Navy, as a cover copy. So, yes, I went for the obvious joke. (sighs) As for the song... It was the Village People's last hit, hitting number three on the Billboard Hot 100. It was actually considered for a recruitment ads for the United States Navy, especially after the group's prior hit, YMCA, had become an unofficial anthem of the YMCA. The group even shot a music video on the decommissioned frigate USS Reasoner. The Navy ultimately decided not to go with the song and instead kept their traditional anthem of Anchors Away. And that's probably more than you ever needed to know about In the Navy by the Village People, and until anyone takes me up on my offer to cover the band's album Live and Sleazy on an episode of Long Play, this is probably about as much coverage as the Village People will get on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Anyway, our comic was released on December 29th, 1992, and it had a February 1993 cover date. The price was $1.75, and as I mentioned, the cover is by Mike Harris and Mark McKenna that shows Ed Marks standing on the deck of an aircraft carrier in muddied fatigues while a helicopter flies away. I have to say that I really like this cover. Just like the Brothers one from last issue, it stood out to me when I was going through the back issue bins looking for issues of the NOM. I think I'm, it might have just been the blue of the sky that makes up the background or the phrase in the navy because once again that suggested something worth looking at but if you look at the cover itself it's well composed 
Marx is in the bottom right-hand corner in the foreground with his back to us. He's holding his typewriter, which is in a case in his left hand, and his duffel bag is slung over his right shoulder. The aircraft carrier stretches out ahead of us with planes lined up, and you can even see the landscape of a country on the horizon line. That horizon line, by the way, is low, and that means a significant amount of the drawing is negative space. Harris and McKenna direct our attention up from Ed in the deck by having the title The Tower of the Aircraft Carrier and the Helicopter Flying Away before we hit the book title. For a cover that really doesn't show a lot of action, it's very well done. Our story is called Yankee Station, and our creative team is Don Lomax Story, Wayne Van Sant Art, Phil Felix Letters Color, and Tui Daly DeFalco on Edits. We open with Ed with the group he was with in the Siege at On Loke storyline, sitting in a bunker and typing out his story. It reads, By April 1972, the North Vietnamese Easter Tide Offensive has been underway for over two weeks. The first major test of the Nixon Doctrine. Only time will tell if the Allied programs of Vietnamization and pacification have a prayer of succeeding. With American troop strength down to less than 100,000 men and women, the defense of South Vietnam rests squarely on the shoulders of regional and popular forces, outnumbered 4-1 to one by North Vietnam's invading army. Much has been written about the inept, cowardly, undertrained Arvin forces, and to some extent is probably true, at least in the northern provinces around Quang Tri. But it is has been this reporter's experience that the regional force protecting on Lok is definitely top of the line. Ed is interrupted by Tex Mex, who has a mail call for him, and they talk about how long they have been there and how they have been under what seems like constant bombardment for the last two days. One of the letters is from Ed's editor, and it seems like Tex Mex and the other boys have gotten some flack for letting Ed, a journalist, come out with them to the boonies. But after reading the letter, he finds out that he's now being reassigned to cover what is going on on the aircraft carrier Coral Sea. Tex Mex says he'll help Ed get out of there. When Ed asks about Rocketman, he says that he was recently killed. Avoiding shell fire, they head to the airport and find a chopper, narrowly avoiding their jeep being destroyed. They begin to take off when several Vietnamese civilians head toward them and Ed insists that they pick them up. A handful of Arvin soldiers tries to rush the chopper and nearly trample Ed, but Tex fires his pistol in the air, gets them to back off, and then the chopper takes off. Our narration boxes go as follows. Ed Marks and Tex Mex say their goodbyes at Da Nang. Ed has a feeling that it may be the last time he will ever see the big friendly Texan. He has been a good friend and ally. Ed will miss him. Yankee Station, a fixed point in the South China Sea at 17 degrees 30 minutes north latitude, 180 degrees 30 minutes east longitude. The United States Navy's 7th Fleet staging area off the Vietnamese coast. Ed's first glimpse of the aircraft carrier Coral Sea takes his breath away. He's never realized until now how truly huge these floating cities are. Ed disembarks from a helicopter and is met by Ensign Percy Frank, who is the public affairs liaison. Ed asks him to give an update on what's going on in the world since he has been out of touch lately. Frank mentions that after the North Vietnamese invasion, Nixon ordered more aircraft carriers to the area with rumors that they will send more. They then talk about how that has been a resumption of the bombing of Hanoi and Haiphong. Frank says that back home there have been a number of demonstrations against this action, and when they reach Ed's room, he leaves him to get settled. Ed puts down his things and opens his mail to find a letter from Jan Silverman in New York. 
and eagle-eyed readers will know that this is the letter that she wrote to him in one of the opening chapters of the stateside backup, which continues this issue after the main story. In the letter, Jan talks about how they met at the AP Forum Bureau earlier this year and how she's been reading and enjoying his columns. Moreover, she would like to meet up with him next time he is in New York for lunch. Ed immediately goes to look for paper to write a letter back and accidentally wakes up his bunkmate, who is named Pigeon Hawkins, who is a forward air controller. They chat for a little while, and then Pigeon tells him about the previous night's mission where he was flying an OV-10 with the purpose of pinpointing targets for F-4s. They took on heavy anti-aircraft fire and were almost hit directly by a surface-to-air missile. But a pair of F-4s that were accompanying them intercepted the SAM and blew it out of the sky. Apparently, it was more action than they usually see. Ensign Frank interrupts their conversation and says that he has arranged for Ed to interview a couple of A-7 Corsair pirates and then mentions that Pigeon is not that verbal. By the time they leave the room, Pigeon has fallen back to sleep, and we end with Ensign Frank escorting Ed to that interview and Ed asking, Could you show me where I could buy some stationery and some envelopes? You know, something a little prettier than legal pads and a business envelope? Writing to a lady, Mr. Marks? Ensign Frank replies. I really like the artwork in this issue. The action of Pigeon's night mission is shown very well, but as far as story goes, it's alright. This basically is a transition story. It implies that much like Ed was spending time in the jungle in the previous storylines, he's now going to be in the aircraft carrier, at least for the foreseeable future. So the purpose of the issue is basically to get him from one place to another. And while it's not the most spectacular issue of the series or anything like that, it's still a solid story. To do a deeper dive, coming in during the middle of the bombardment at the bunker gives us some good action, and I like how Wayne Fancent and Phil Felix have the constant boom of artillery shelling in the background during the first few pages of the comic. There's also some drama in getting out of there, since the airport they leave from is under heavy attack and they narrowly miss getting blown to bits. Ed saving the civilians, while probably a little too extra for this scene, works well considering how we have seen him being concerned and compassionate towards civilians ever since he got back into the war. I'd say he's always been that compassionate, even back in his first days in country as a grunt, but in this case we have an older Ed who now feels like he can probably do more than he would have been able to do back in 1967. The splash page that serves as the book's title page, by the way, is gorgeous. It's pretty much reflective of the cover with a helicopter swooping in toward an aircraft carrier, but instead of putting us on deck of the aircraft carrier, we get this overhead shot at sunset. I've really come to appreciate the realness of Wayne Van Zant's art in this title, especially during this later part of his run when he's inking himself. And then as he does, he makes what is a conversation between two characters worth watching not once, but twice. Ensign Frank moves Ed from one point to another, and Pigeon talks to him while sitting on his bunk. And they are conversations that need to happen because... Ed is getting information he needs since he was away from the world for so long, and it establishes both character and setting. They just scoot things along and act as if we're all eavesdropping in on them. I suppose that if we didn't have a backup feature, we would get Ed into some more action that maybe leads into the next issue, but we don't, so we just get Pigeon's story. But at least Lomax leaves us hanging with a, I wonder where they are going to go with this feeling, so that we know that this is not a one-and-done type of story. And I'll be picking up that story in the next episode, actually, so there won't be too long to wait for that. Right now, I'm going to jump into the stateside feature, which is called Reunion, and is written by Don Lomax with pencils by Mike Harris, inks by Frank Percy, 
letters by Miguel O'Higgins, colors by John Calise, and edits by the same team of Tui, Daly, and DeFalco. We open on an anti-war protest with the caption box filling us in. From April 15th to the 20th of 1972, hundreds of anti-war demonstrations spring up across the country, protesting the president's decision to resume the bombing of North Vietnam. At the front gate of the White House, hippies, college students, Vietnam vets, and the elderly stand together in es- against the escalation. Right in front is Dennis, the wheelchair-bound vet whom we have seen in previous chapters of Stateside. He is among the protesters who are now getting told to disperse by the police, and instead of going away, he decides to chain himself to the gate of the White House and swallow his key. The cops then retrieve bolt cutters and arrest him. Later, he shows up at Sergeant Pokola's house. Sarge wonders if he's lost his key, and Dennis admits that he accidentally swallowed his house key and not the key to the padlock. They sit down to some leftovers and coffee and talk about Dennis's decision to protest the war, and Sarge says that Dennis paid his dues in the war, and in his mind, he can say whatever he wants and protest because, well, he's earned that right. Dennis begins to thank Sarge for taking him in when Sarge pulls out his gun and ushers Dennis out of the room, telling him that he spotted a prowler walking around outside. But as they find out quickly, it's not a prowler, it's Rob Little. This is another transition chapter in an ongoing story, because as we move closer to the finale of the stateside storyline, we're going to get a number of these characters intersecting directly with one another. Rob showing up makes sense because he was such a huge focus of issue 76. In fact, he's in the same jacket that he was wearing on the cover of the issue, so I think it's implied that since he spent some time talking to his brother at his grave, he began thinking about the people he served with and decided to look up whom he could. But that's the end of the story, because most of the story is about Dennis protesting and a conversation between him and Sarge about what cops think of protesters and vice versa. Sarge has always been a great character and one of those guys who always seems pretty apt to judge a person based on his individual actions and not stereotypes or generalizations, and I like the rationale that he has for accepting Dennis's protest of the war. Granted, I'm the type of person who will always agree with one's right to protest even if I disagree with their point or their politics, which I don't think is an outlandish or crazy stance to take. Plus, Sarge's point is also one of respecting what Dennis is doing because of the experience he has, which while I don't think anyone gives more right to protest or use their voice over someone else, at least it it does carry more weight, or at least does get people to pay more attention. In a few episodes, I'll be talking about Ron Kovic's book Born on the Fourth of July and the Oliver Stone film of the same name, and I can see the parallels behind Dennis and Ron Kovic, a disabled vet who has started to put his life back together and has now become an activist. I also like the friendship that Dennis and Sarge have developed since the two of them first met a few issues ago. In the little space that he's had, Lomax has made us interested in the new characters while getting us reacquainted with the old and that also makes me want to see more of this. I may have more mentioned this already in a prior episode, but I, I know we're only going to get so far into the 1970s with these stateside stories, and I would have loved to see something on the level of that China Beach finale with our group, showing them years and years later. And put a pin in that because I definitely want to talk about that later on. The art is solid. Frank Percy is a new inker for Mike Harris because Jimmy Palmiotti at this point was the regular inker on Punisher 2099. I was doing other higher profile jobs for Marvel as well as some DC work. Percy's inks also suit Harris's pencils well. They are a little darker and they're a little more detailed and that makes the art tighter. Plus, 
Harris really has improved on using different angles, close-ups, facial expressions, and body movement to make, as Wayne Van Zandt did in the main story, a conversation between two people seem interesting on a comics page. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do next issue. Now, there are no letters this month. There is a Wayne Van Zandt pinup of two soldiers in a bunker with M16s. One is firing and the other one looks like he's on a radio. It's really nice. I mean, most of his pinups really are. But let's go ahead and look at the ads. Um, let's see. There's a ad for the Turbo Touch 360 by Triax, which is the technology breakthrough in video game control. It's a brand new um, Nintendo controller that kind of just looks like the old Nintendo Max controller. I had that one for, for years on my Nintendo. And the, the copy says, breathe new life into your Nintendo for under $20, because this is around the time that the um, Super NES, uh, Super NES was coming out. And actually, I'm pretty sure the Super NES was out already. And uh, the Nintendo was, they were starting, they were stopping production on a lot of games that really weren't putting a lot out. So it's kind of a, a cheap way as uh, to get you kind of to play your old Nintendo games, as is um, this, the Game Genie. I had one of these, and I don't remember how I got it. I think somebody, a friend of mine or a friend of my sister's, left it at our house, and we used to play with it for a while until they finally came and took it back. The Game Genie was a cartridge that you attached to your Nintendo cartridge, and you put it in the system, so the cartridge would kind of stick out of the system. But there were um, cheat codes to use with the Game Genie. So if you put a code into the Game Genie, you could get certain power-ups or you could fast-forward to a certain level or whatever. I remember that with one game, I think it was Super Mario Bros. 3, it crashed the game if you got to the boss at the end. Um, something about... I don't know what it was, but like uh, there, there was some issue with it. So... But for the most part, I remember beating a couple of games with the Game Genie. Again, this is like late NES period. I think I was in high school by this point. So, you know, um, and, and I really would kind of check out from video games for the most part uh, after this. I mean, I play quite a bit of, of stuff in college and here and there, but not to the level that, that some of my friends are like hardcore gamer types. There's an ad for the Chuck Rock Super Nintendo game. I don't remember this one. A score select baseball card ad featuring Chuck Knobloch and John Cruck. Uh, there's a Mystic Quest ad for the NES. It shows a brain um, with a dipstick in it. It says head change and head lube and oil change for $39.99. No graphics, but uh, but this was a this was a game for the Super Nintendo. There were quite a few of these Super Nintendo ads where you had like some sort of copy, the game cartridge box, maybe a graphic, but like, you know, it was just very much a white background. And, and, and um, you get that like here and there throughout a lot of this early Super Nintendo ad. And it's not just the same company. So I, I think they were just kind of copying what they thought worked. Bullpen bulletins this month. So we are in the um, December, so the holiday season. Uh, let's see. Stan is on his soapbox. He says, most of the letters we get ask uh, the same questions. What do I have to study to become a comic book artist and how do I bring them to the field? He says, well, just to show our Christmas spirit, I'll try to give you a capsule to answer the queries and save you the trouble of writing any additional letters. 
The most important rule I can think of is don't just try to be a comic book artist. First, become an artist. Study the whole world of art, anatomy, composition, perspective, portal, portraiture, color, etc. The more knowledge you bring to your craft, the more effective your panels will be. Not until you become a proficient in all the essential elements of illustration should you try to zero in on the technique of drawing comics. Always remember the comic book artists are more like movie directors. They must decide on the best camera angle for each panel. They must be able to cast the best actor in each role by drawing the characters who most perfectly suit the situation. And they must know how to frame each panel, how to light each panel, and how to keep the reader's eye moving from panel to panel in the smoothest way. So study movies as much as you study comics. There's a great parallel between the two. As for how to break into comics, the method is simple, though the competition is tough. Once you think your work is up to professional standards, draw a few sample pages depicting some su typical superhero situation, preferably using our characters, and send your Ilios to the Marvel care of the submissions editor. I don't think either comic book company of the big two, I don't even think Image or any other comic book company, except for maybe a few small presses, currently takes unsolicited um submissions these days i, I want to say that a lot of that stuff ends up in the slush pile like it would in any other publishing company but maybe back in the early 1990s you could break into comics this way he says if you're the artist he's been looking for his reply might prove your best to be your best christmas present of all i have heard um I, i'm not an artist i i i could this is really really arrogant of me to say i could probably be a writer if i had any comic writer if i had a good idea for a comic um but i i love to write writing is my strength if, if i'm choosing one over the other um i have heard that advice with regard to artists though of that you just don't draw just draw pinups draw like pages so you can show how you can storyboard or, or create the story with the figures and things like that because that's what editors might want to see um so I also think I would have made a hell of a comic book editor. Uh, missed my chance, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, um, okay, so the bullpen bulletin thing is a lot about um, uh, what's coming out. We've got uh, Marvel Masterpiece trading cards are coming out. Um, Kevin Kabasik is going to be a freelance penciler, and uh, James Felder is taking over. For him, Ron Mars just got married, and Thomas Nelson Publishing publishes one of the Christian inspirational books, has teamed with Marvel um, to produce a whole series of titles primarily for the inspirational book market, and it'll be called Paragon. It's a religious bi-monthly 48-page series of a brand new teen superhero. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, which is the 96-page adaptation of the classic novel by Martin Powell. And, well, that's that's not who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Martin Powell's writing the uh, the adaptation. And then The Christmas Story, which will be uh, written by uh, Louise Simonson and then done by Mary Wilshire and Bill Anderson. Let's see, let's see. You got this. What they did, they took the Coolometer and they created the, the bullpen borderline blather, which is the same thing. So what was hot in the late of 1993? We have moral bankruptcy, high-definition television, Demographic underpinnings, tyranny of ideal beauty, micromanagement, read-only memory, family values, corporate, coprolite, inherent processing, kiss noise, new age beverages, malapropis, malaprops, battle trauma, non-disclosure, malice, malcrum, 
Malleus Malleus Malficarum. This is what I get for trying to turn my comic around and reading this crap. User-friendly industrial convergence, damaging evidence, rapetivists, job perks, common ground, soul patches, security deposit, mouth breathers, customized experiences. You killed the cooler meter for this, guys. Ooh, entertainment this month. Let's see what is hot. The def Secret Defenders. Ooh, Secret Defenders number one has a foil-stamped cover. It's a can't-miss, and it's got their highest possible recommendation. Darker Image, featuring the appearance of characters by Rob Liefeld, Sam Keith, and Jim Lee. This violent new image title will be absolutely blisteringly hot. Stormwatch is coming out. Um, Stormwatch being one of the ones that would survive into the Wildstorm DC uh, acquisition. Or the DC acquisition of Wildstorm, that is. And Stormwatch would give way to the authority. So, like, Stormwatch has some pretty humble beginnings. Well, okay, Stormwatch has some very early 90s beginnings. Like, it might as well be, like, Poor Man's Wildcats or Cyberforce or something. It's a very, very clone of what was out there. But then it would become something a lot more under, I believe, Warren... Ellis was the writer. Um, let's see. Uh, Spider-Man number 375, Amazing Spider-Man number 375, has a holographics metallic cover featuring the turn of Carnage and Venom, and that's going to be hot. Spawn number 8 features by and uh, a story by Alan Moore, a full-color post by Frank Miller and stellar art by Todd McFarlane. Spawn number 8 will be hot. Valiant Comics has gained acclaim for publishing high-quality superhero titles with innovative stories and enjoyable characters. And uh, we've got some mega-hits, such as Aliens Colonial Marines, Wildcats uh, Trading Cards, The Wizard Top 100 Comics Ever Special, which I'm pretty sure I had at one point. I know I had a few of those Wizard Specials. Um, the Superman vs. Doomsday Trade, which was the entire uh, six-part Death of Superman saga. Um, it's funny how they bury, like, DC stuff all the way at the bottom. Like, if you want DC stuff, you've got Enigma, Hardware, Legionnaires, Legacy of Superman, San Ramirez Street Theater, and Supergirl Lex Luthor number one. And that's all the way in the bottom. Like, you really have to look for it. Everything else is Image, Valiance, Marvel, mostly. We have another, uh, Tom Glavin is pitching, like, literally and figuratively speaking, for Fleer, for baseball cards. There's just a, a very, very basic-looking subscription ad. The T2 arcade game is now on Genesis. This is actually a lot different than the ad copy we've seen because this is a full-page picture of uh, the T1, the, the, the Metal Skeleton T uh, Terminator firing at you from the video game. There's, there's insert stills of the video game, uh, a look at what the video game looked like in... Um, in the arcade, and then there is a shot of the T2 the arcade game box for the Genesis, as well as it's available on the Game Boy. Um, the ga graphics on the Game Boy sucked, and I don't know why they pushed it. I guess because it was portable. But and then on the back cover, we have Scotty Pippen holding up a basketball, and it's a ad for Fleer basketball cards. So that'll do it for the number seventy-seven. I will be back in a moment with historical context. So stick around. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. 
say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? <laughs> Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That yeah, kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. <laughs> Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And we are back. So we are looking at the end of the summer of 1972. And we are going to start with July 11th. July 11th, 1972, the NBA attacked on Loke, and that is uh, thwarted by South Vietnamese troops aided by B-52 airstrikes. The Paris peace or talks would resume on July 13th. On July 14th, uh, in the United States politics, the Democrats held their convention. They would choose Senator George McGovern of South Dakota as their presidential nominee. McGovern, an outspoken critic of the war, would advocate immediate and complete withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, McGovern, by the way, would lose the election to Nixon, of course, because Nixon would end up serving uh, at least a little bit more than half of his second term. It is, at least in modern memory, um, one of the most lopsided elections. I mean, McGovern got like 13 electoral votes. It was just Nixon just demolished him. On July 15th, uh, this is a very infamous Moment in the Vietnam War, actress Jane Fonda posed for photographs at a North Vietnamese anti-aircraft gun in Hanoi, and the first images were printed in a newspaper in Poland. Pictures of the actress gazing through the gun sight of a weapon used to shoot down American planes during the ongoing Vietnam War, it ran worldwide the next day. Throughout the years, Fonda has discussed this incident and has times said she, which she was manipulated into posing for the photographs, which outraged many Americans to the point where a number of veterans still are angry with her. Most recently on her website, this was a few years ago, Fonda addressed the controversy saying, It happened on my last day at Hanoi. I was exhausted and an emotional wreck after the two-week visit. The translator told me that the soldiers wanted to sing me a song. He translated as they sung. It was a song about the day Uncle Ho declared their country's independence in Hanoi's Badin Square. I heard these words. All men are created equal. They are given certain rights. Among these are life, liberty, and happiness. These are the words Ho pronounced at the, demo at the historic ceremony. I began to cry and clap. These men should not be our enemy. They celebrate the same words Americans do. The soldiers asked me to sing for them in return. I memorized a song called De Ma Di, and I apologize if I'm butchering uh, these Vietnamese pronunciations as, as I tend to, written by anti-war South Vietnamese students. I knew I was slaughtering it, but everyone seemed delighted that I was making the attempt. I finished. Everyone was laughing and clapping, including me. Here's my best, honest recollection of what happened. Someone, I don't remember who, led me toward the gun and I sat down, still laughing, still applauding. I hardly even thought about where I was sitting. The cameras flashed. It was possible that it was a setup that the Vietnamese had it all planned. I will never know, but if they did, I can't blame them. The buck stops here. If I was used, I allowed it to happen. A two-minute lapse of sanity that will haunt me forever. But the photo exists, delivering its message, regardless of what I have been doing or feeling. I carry this 
heavy in my heart. I have apologized numerous times for any pain I have caused servicemen and their families because of this photograph. It was never my intention to cause harm. On July 17th, the American destroyer USS Warrington was damaged beyond repair by two underwater explosions while in the Gulf of Tonkin. The blasts were believed to have been caused by an American mine that had washed away after having been laid in North Vietnam's ports. The Warrington became the only American warship to be destroyed in the Vietnam War. On July 18th, during her same visit to Hanoi, Jane Fonda broadcasts uh, anti-war messages via Hanoi Radio. Now, according to Wikipedia, Fonda made radio broadcasts on Hanoi Radio throughout her two-week tour, commenting on her visits to villages, hospitals, schools, and factories damaged in the war, denouncing the United States military policy in Vietnam. Fonda has defended her decision to travel to North Vietnam in her radio broadcast. During the course of her visit, Fonda visited American prisoners of war and brought back messages from them to their families. When stories of torture of returning POWs were later being publicized by the Nixon administration, Fonda called the returning POWs hypocrites and liars and pawns, adding that the prisoners she visited, these were not men who had been tortured. These were not men who had been starved. These were not men who had been brainwashed. In addition, Fonda told the New York Times in 1973, I'm quite sure that there were incidents of torture, but the pilots who were saying it was the policy of the Vietnamese and that it was systematic, I believe that's a lie. Her visits to the POW camp led to persistent and exaggerated rumors which were repeated widely in the press and continue to circulate on the internet decades later. Fonda, as well as the name POWs, have personally denied the rumors, and subsequent interviews with the POWs showed these rumor allegations to be false, as the persons named never met Fonda. That is the last of the James Fonda-related material for this section I'm presenting without comment. I will more than likely bring it up in a couple of episodes, because I'm going to spend at least a little bit of time talking about her 1978 film, Coming Home. But feel free to write in about this if you'd like to discuss it. July 17th, 1972. South Vietnamese troops begin a major counteroffensive against the North Vietnamese Army in the Binh Dinh province. The guided missile frigate USS Biddle DLG-34 was attacked by five North Vietnamese MiGs and two raids off the coast of North Vietnam. They were repulsed by missiles and gunfire with no damage incurred by the Biddle. One MiG was destroyed by a terrier missile, which was the second possibly destroyed. On August 1st, Henry Kissinger met again with Le Duc Toe in Paris. On August 11th, with the deactivation of the 3rd Battalion of the 21st U.S. Infantry, the last American ground combat units were pulled out of South Vietnam. The 1,043-man unit had been assigned to the U.S. air base at Da Nang. Air and sea operations continued, and more than 40,000 U.S. servicemen would remain in Vietnam. On August 13th, former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark returned from North Vietnam, where he traveled as a private individual as part of a fact-finding group. Clark said they had confirmed that the United States was bombing hospitals and dikes, and he had been told that American prisoners, quote, will be released immediately when we stop this senseless murderous bombing and end the war and get out, get home, and get to the business of building the peace and giving happiness to the little children around the world. On August 23rd, the last U.S. combat troops finally do depart Vietnam, and on August 28th, Captain R. Stephen Ritchie became the first American ace fighter in the Vietnam War after downing his fifth enemy airplane in combat. Charles B. De Bellevue would down his fifth and sixth planes the following month. All five of Steve Ritchie's victories were of MiG-21 fighters. 
He retired in 1994 as a Brigadier General. On August 29th, President Nixon announced that 12,000 more American soldiers would be withdrawn from Vietnam over a three-month period, with only 27,000 remaining by December 1st. The withdrawal would represent a 95% drop since the peak of 543,400 troops in April of 1969. In Cambodia on September 3rd, 1972, the elections for the Khmer Republic's 126-member National Assembly took place because of the presidential decree designed to give President Nguyen Nol's Social Republican Party an advantage. The other parties withdrew from participating. The Social Republicans won all 126 seats on what claimed to be a 78% turnout. September 9th, Charles B. DeVelview, who I uh, mentioned earlier, became the last American flying ace, registering a fifth and sixth shootdown, the most during the Vietnam War. And on September 16th, Quang Tri City is recaptured by the South Vietnamese. And on the 17th, in the first release of prisoners of war since 1969, North Vietnam released three American POWs, Navy Lieutenants Norris Charles and Markham Gartley, and Air Force Major Edward Elias were provided civilian clothes and then allowed to stay in Hanoi with an American welcoming team. A number of 539 American PWs remained in captivity, and more than 1,000 Americans listed as missing in action were unaccounted for. On September 26th, the North Vietnamese negotiator Lee Duc Tho dropped demands that South Vietnam's President Nguyen Van Thu be removed from office as a conditioning for ending the war, which is a breakthrough in the peace negotiations. And finally, on September 29th, heavy U.S. air raids against airfields in North Vietnam destroyed 10% of their air force. Now, I do want to mention two other things briefly. Uh, there are terms that Ed Marks mentions in his article at the very top of the issue. One of them is called Vietnamization. The other one is called pacification. Vietnamization is a policy that the Nixon administration enacted in full as a way to draw down the involvement of American troops in the war and more or less turn the war over to the South Vietnamese. The policy was actually drafted by the Johnson administration after the events of the Tet Offensive in 68, where the South Vietnamese and the United States had taken considerable losses and where the public opinion of the war really began to shift. The My Lai Massacre and the publication of the Pentagon Papers in 1969 and 1970 compounded this, and by the time we are in our issue here, it's in effect on a very large scale. Now, the policy would prove effective as far as the drawdown of American troops was concerned because by 1973, the United States would pretty much be completely out of the Vietnam War. However, it's also largely considered a failure because the Arvin forces that were trained under the policy were not as effective as Nixon and those in charge had hoped, and South Vietnam would ultimately fall in 1975. It's also worth noting, by the way, that this is one of the policies that represents what was becoming a shift in overall United States foreign policy during the 1970s when it came to the communism and the countries that represented that philosophy. Not to get too deep into the politics of the Cold War prior to the 1970s, but put simply, the United States operated a policy of containment that was, again, put simply because you could take a whole class on the politics of the Cold War, and I did back in college. This is based on the domino theory, and that was theory was that there were 
particular geographic areas that were vulnerable to communism, and if one country fell, the other countries around it would follow. This is one of the reasons we revolved the Korean War, since Mao's revolution had triumphed in 1949 in China and North Korea followed suit, and it's also one of the reasons that we intervened on the side of the South Vietnamese starting in the 1950s. But by now you have a policy that was known as detente, which again, put simply because it is a whole class, was the idea that the two superpowers, the United States and Soviet Union, could work toward mutual cooperation. This was a bit of a thaw in the Cold War during the 1970s, and we saw it in the form of nuclear arms treaties, joint space missions, and other cultural and political exchanges. This would not last particularly long, by the way. Things would heat up way up back in the late 1970s and early 80s as a result of the number of events, including but not limited to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, as well as more aggressive diplomatic and economic policies on the part of the Reagan administration in the early 1980s. But detente is important on its own because of the end of this containment policy that had really been the driving force behind a number of major U.S. military decisions in the first couple of decades of the Cold War. Pacification is the other term. This is an official term, although the unofficial term was more commonly used was hearts and minds. Now, before I go on about that, I want to talk about another time the word pacification comes up with regard to Vietnam, and that has to do with events prior to the war when the country was occupied by the French. This was the French effort to quell any resistance to their rule after taking over the North Vietnamese region of Tonkin, which includes the city of Hanoi, in the late 1880s and 1890s. France and China had fought a limited war over the region after the French won. They wanted to establish a protectorate in Tonkin and suppress Vietnamese rebellion. This was essentially a military operation across North Vietnam that was ultimately successful. It put an end to a growing insurgency. The French, of course, would occupy the country until 1954 with a break during the Second World War because of the Japanese invasion. And in 1954, the Vietnamese Revolutionary Forces won the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, forcing them out. Pacification in the Vietnam War during the 1960s and the 1970s goes back to the Kennedy administration, working in conjunction with the Diem government in South Vietnam to stop the growing influence of the Viet Cong in the country. This early program was not very successful, mostly due to one of its most controversial policies of clearing out farming villages and moving people into the cities. The Kennedy administration took a more military approach in some regards. They looked more closely at how to combat guerrilla warfare. And unfortunately, both DM and Kennedy were assassinated in 1963. The war intensified, and as the 1960s wore on, the Johnson administration continued to explore this concept because they did believe that Vietnam needed to be pacified in order to win the war. In February of 1966, LBJ, at a meeting with South Vietnamese and American leaders in Hawaii, attempted to, quote, get the gospel of pacification carved into the hearts and minds of all concerned. This eventually led to the creation of the Civil Operations and Recovery Development Support Organization known as CORDS. The military and the United States government loves their acronyms, people. You've got to remember that. Uh, The organization, CORDS, did help make a pacification a success in a number of ways through the late 1960s and the early 1970s. 
as the role of the Viet Cong decreased and the war became more conventional, especially in its closing years. I am sure that Vietnamization played into that as well, but as we saw with the other policy, it ultimately proved fruitless in 1975 because North Vietnam would ultimately win the war. How successful this idea, and how successful Cords itself actually was, is debatable. As those in charge claim that it was significant, especially in regard to its lessening the strength of the Viet Cong. Others say that those statistics are inflated and the program was an overall, well, it was ineffective. In 1974, Peter Davis directed a documentary by the same name that detailed these efforts. And that, as lectury as that got, is your historical context for the episode. Come back next time for an extra-sized episode because I will be covering the nom number 78, which continues Ed Mark's work with the Navy, as well as our stateside story. I'll also be looking at a feature article from Marvel Age number 122, and I will be taking a look at the first part of another Punisher and the Nam storyline, sort of, as I will be covering Punisher War Journal number 72. As always, you can follow me on twitter at pop that's p-o-p-a-f-f um send along comments questions emails i'm always up for answering those and uh thank you very much as always for listening and take care You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.